making your own eyepieces and other listener emails on episode 398 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris. Joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. Have a couple thank yous to Patreon supporters. Shane, who are we thanking today? Yeah, we do. Uh, thank you, Sean and Francis, uh, for your new Patreon support. We really appreciate it. And thank you to all of the Patreon supporters out there. Uh, again, we appreciate all of you. I think we got to sort out some bills at some point later on this month. Yeah, that's the t- the time of the year we're getting into where all of the renewals come in. So yeah, I think yeah. I uh, it seems like December and the first part of the year. So yeah, I put some on my credit card. I think I sent you a couple. There was a couple other things. So yeah, thanks so much for the support, folks. Because without you, we would just not be doing this. I think it would be kind of tough. You know, Shane. One of the strange things, and I think people find out because we've had a few people contact us about doing their own podcast is. You have to pay to do a podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, at least to the like degree that we're doing it. Uh, you know, if you want to do multiple episodes a week and and uh, you know not be restricted to say thirty minute durations, um, yeah, you you know you you start to incur some costs to make that happen. But that's uh, you know all taken care of with uh, the Patreon support, which we uh, again we do appreciate. Yeah, we do. Because I think our, now correct me if I'm wrong, but at least in my mind, the original plan was we would do this for the pandemic. And then once the pandemic was over, maybe we would be over, or at least we wouldn't keep doing it the way that we have been doing it. But uh, because of the Patreon support, we've kind of just kept going, folks. So I hope people are enjoying it. It seems like they are. And if you enjoy it and you've thought about supporting us, we certainly do appreciate when you do. Yeah, for sure. All right, we've got a few emails here to uh, get through. We're talking to uh, Adam. We had a, a few back and forths there. Maybe uh, I can start if you want me to begin. Sure, reading. sure. Uh, Adam wrote, hello, Chris and Shane. I've been enjoying your podcasts, especially the ones on telescope making. Mm. We, you know, and I'm going to interrupt myself. How Can you interrupt yourself? But I am. All right. Or maybe I'm interrupting Adam, in which case my apologies for this, Adam. But um, we've had a few other people. I think there's been three people who wrote recently asking for more big dob content. And we are going to have another listener on to talk about big dobs Mm -hmm. soon. And people should just search in the backlog, too, because we've had Mel Bartels and Howard Banich on to talk about big dobs. So um, we will try to provide more of that content going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Howard is also lining us up with a couple folks for mid spring to talk about their exceptionally large Dobsonians. So we, we, we've heard you, we are working on it. We will do our best. Adam goes on to say, it's something I would like to try my hand at for a couple of reasons. That is the telescope making. First, I love building things and working with my hands, making something myself that allows me to see other planets and celestial objects really appeals to me. Second, astronomy is expensive and I'm always trying to find ways to cut costs, but there is always a balance between cost and performance. With that in mind, I've been looking to make my own eyepieces. All of the eyepieces I have either came with my beginner scopes or are lower to average quality uh, simply because I can't afford to pay more at this time in my life. I'm curious if either of you have ever tried making your own eyepieces. Shane, have you ever tried 
making your own eyepiece? No, but I've been somewhat intrigued by it. I, I've read multiple threads on cloudy nights uh, of people that have done this, you know, uh, buying various lenses and then putting them together or taking lenses from existing eyepieces and kind of messing around with them. So it's, uh, it's something that I've read about, but nothing I've ever tried before. I have not. I do have friends that have made their own eyepieces and I've looked through those and they range from good to interesting. Um, yeah, my, my friend Clark, he made like a replica of one of Galileo's eyepieces, which I think is called like a Galilean eyepiece. It's like a doublet or a singlet or something of that nature. It was pretty uh, interesting. Definitely worked different than any other eyepiece that I've ever looked through. For for me though, Shane, my so I really, really love telescope making. I am not a telescope maker and I'm not really a builder. I know you're a little bit more on this line of uh, thought than I am. And for me, the, uh, the way that my brain tends to work is I really want to do the astronomy. It is just like an overwhelming compulsion for me to do astronomy. And for example, even in my observatory, which I, I have a builder who is doing most of the work, um, when I go out and have to, <clears throat> excuse me, mess with things to get something working, um, that I can already do with my existing setups. I have, uh, I take no joy in that, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. uh, I know that some people really enjoy that process, but for me, not so much, uh, but I, I'll let you weigh in Shane, cause I know you're differently minded than I am. Well, I, I enjoy being creative or crafty when I need a solution to a problem. Um, but I'm fairly similar, I think, in approach to you, Chris, in terms of, you know, I, I don't want to be messing around, I guess, with stuff. I, I just like to observe and, you know, if I, if I can build a chair or build an adapter that helps me do more observing, then certainly I don't mind taking on a project. Yeah. Now that said, I do have friends that are, and this I think is the other thing is that I've seen, <clears throat> excuse me, what it takes, um, for people to build these things. And like, I have huge respect for this. So nobody should read me wrong. Same with my builder who's building most of my observatory. My respect for these individuals, uh, cannot be, uh, uh, overstated or understated or what I have huge respect for people like, and build telescopes and observatories and all this stuff. It's, I just find it, uh, I, a lot of people like to build things and then work through the solutions. Like when they run into problems and that's how their brain works to me, that's what I do at my job every day. And I get all of that out of my system <laughs> constantly. I'm, I'm living in that environment. And when I leave work, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to go and look through the instruments. I really like some of the stuff that Alejandro said in our last uh, episode about that. I think eyepieces are pretty cool and I've seen people dabble around with them. I've even, I came really close. There was somebody who was building like a singlet ball eyepieces, Shane, a few years back. Do you remember this? Yeah. I think Siebert optics uh, was doing that. I think Seabird, and then there was like just a random person on Cloudy Nights that was just making them for fun and then selling them in the, and oh. I came really close just to buying one just because I think that's interesting. So if I was like Adam, maybe a little bit better with my DIY skills, I, I think that's a cool project. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably, um, you can probably go deeper on this, Adam, that maybe you've thought you can actually 
buy software that is not inexpensive, unfortunately, but you can probably maybe even buy some or get some freeware. And then there's also some books. I have that book by uh, Sergio Lee and Barry and others about eyepiece design. And that book is unfortunately a bit expensive, but I think Sky and Telescope is reissuing it. So maybe it's like $50 American or in that price range anyway. That would be worth picking up because it has tons of eyepiece information. I think like half the book is eyepieces or something. If if I were you, I would get a copy of that because they just walk you through all the main, um, I guess, principles and methodologies and that of eyepiece design and construction and blah blah blah. Uh, you might uh, you might benefit from from a read of that, and that would be cool. I I think that it would be neat if more people made this stuff. Perhaps Adam will be the next Al Nagler. <laughs> we'll be we'll be buying Adam's eyepieces or something. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, Adam goes on to say, over time, I've gathered many types and sizes of lenses uh, from data projectors but uh, and such, but I haven't really had a chance to experiment. And there is little information out there. Get that book. Um, that I can easily find to arrange uh, the glasses. The other thing you can do is just experiment. If you could build like a little rig to kind of just move things around, you can probably figure out what works and what doesn't work based on what you have. That being said, during my research, I came across a gentleman in the United States who makes eyepieces. I can't remember where Adam is from, but he's not. And he goes on to say that this gentleman in the States makes eyepieces from salvaged binoculars. His name is Red Henry, which... Alejandro actually referred to getting some eyepieces from mm, him. Yes, he did. He has a Facebook group and that is called A Second Look, reusing old lenses for astronomy. And he sent me the link. I don't, I'm not on Facebook, so it didn't work for me. On the page, there's great video of his process. I keep thinking about joining Facebook because of things like this. This is what I'm interested in. But then every time I see people at work or wherever on Facebook, they're, they don't seem to be using it for this purpose, so I don't know. Um, he goes on to say, uh, Red Henry uses the objective lenses from two identical pairs of broken binoculars to create what he calls a double plossal eyepiece, which contains four elements. He claims the views are fantastic, much better than the one and a quarter inch eyepieces that come with beginner instruments. He then gifts them to other budding amateur astronomers from around the USA. We had an example of that here this morning. He unfortunately does not ship outside the USA. I personally have yet to find two identical pairs of old binoculars, but one day I might, and we'll give it a try. Uh, love to hear if you have ever tried something like this or know somebody who has, or if there are any resources to help those of us looking to try our hand at eyepiece making. Uh, thank you for the show and for taking us along your astronomy journey. All the best, Adam. Thanks so much, Adam, for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, interesting email. Um, you, you know, there's just so many facets to this hobby where you can, uh, kind of, you know, dive into, and if you're creative or like taking on some projects, there's, there's no shortage of this kind of stuff. I, I think that book on eyepieces, astrographs and, and such, uh, by Roger Sergioli and Richard Berry and others. I, I think that's the book you want, Adam. And if, excuse me, if, if the price is a bit high, Simply see if you can get it out of library, or get the library to get it in. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Shane, just having a bit of a cough here. Yeah, no problem. 
the the library suggestion is a really good one. Um, you you know, I I guess I can't speak for all library organizations, but around here, um, you know, across our province, you can request a book, uh, even if the local library doesn't have it, and then they'll facilitate. Uh, getting it sort of shipped from another library uh, so that you're able to sign it out and, and read it. And even in some cases, uh, like I know our city library system, uh, I believe they have a budget just set aside for buying books that people request if it's not within the uh, provincial inventory. Um, so you can submit your request that way sometimes and they'll bring it in for you. Yeah. I, I can't remember where Adam is from. Um, but regardless, I think that would be a good resource. And then the other thing would be to go on to like the cloudy nights telescope making forum and just like make a post. Hey, is anybody here? Like, mm -hmm. or do a search there and then see what other people have done. Like I said, there were people who were building singlets a few years ago and they, uh, they detailed it out pretty good where to get the optics and where to get a few other things. And, um, yeah, regarding the binocular eyepieces, have you ever looked through or heard of people using the binocular eyepieces before, Shane? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, some of the, um, like some of the older wide field binoculars that have really tall standing, like, I guess, eyepiece objectives, uh, I've heard that those, uh, can be removed and work quite well in a telescope, but, um, I, I don't know a lot of detail. I read about it on cloudy nights and, uh, you know, if somebody's interested, certainly dive into that because there was a lot of information there. Um, one possible path to follow down is uh, that John Dobson used to salvage eyepieces from binoculars and uh, modify them in a very basic way to work in telescopes. Uh, I did talk, the reason why I know that is because I talked to him about it and uh I thought it was a pretty interesting uh, use of those. And I have looked through, there was one member in our club back in uh, Nova Scotia, and I think he had done this. He had a couple eyepieces that uh, he, he was into sort of recycling anything that broke, and he had a broken pair of binoculars, and he used half for a finder, and then he, uh, I think he he used the other one in the, in the telescope and um, worked pretty good for like public outreach and and that sort of thing. So that is definitely possible. I think nowadays with uh, so much being on the internet, I think you should be able to find some, you know, ways to 3D print housings and stuff like that for them. And I don't know, maybe even disassemble them and figure out a more optimized uh, spacing mm -hmm. uh, for, for the optics to, you know, like you said, Shane, get, get some pretty nice wide field eyepieces out of them. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, Jim sent us a short email. Uh, do you want to take a read of that? Yeah. So we've been talking, uh, Chris, a little bit about this new, I think it's new anyway, Sea Star Telescope, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a neat design and it's not super new, but this one I think maybe is a little more advanced or has, has, uh, some features that maybe make it a little bit better. Like uh, a low price. I think yeah, like the, yeah, yeah, one of the driving forces. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, just a quick summary is you can buy this telescope it's not for visual, I don't believe, but nope. out of the box, this thing will just image for you. You tell it what to look at and it will do the imaging and the, uh, you know, acquiring frames and stacking and doing basically all of the work and spitting out an image for you, uh, which is super cool. 
so Jim wrote, uh, if you haven't already, you may want to look at the in-depth and generally positive review of the sea star in the March, 2024 sky and telescope magazine. Uh, it sounds like there is a built-in dual narrow band filter, uh, mm -hmm. while there is no direct way to enter coordinates. Perhaps it will lure some seasoned veteran or seasoned observers to put their toes into the astrophotography waters, as well as bring others onto the astronomy hobby. Many of the features of this telescope are also functions of the ZWO or ZWO's uh, Asair devices, uh, which Mark Radici mentioned in your podcast last September. Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, the key attraction of imaging is that it enables me to see targets otherwise difficult or impossible to capture in my suburban backyard, uh, opening further deep dives into what I'm viewing. It sounds like the sea star has made this even easier at 50 millimeters, which Chris, this is like one of the surprising things to me too, with this sea star is that the aperture is only 50 millimeters, but mm. the images that people are capturing with it are quite amazing. Yep. Um, and then Jim writes, uh, well, they come out with a model in the 80 millimeter or 115 millimeter focal, uh, focal length soon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't think we have an answer to that one, but, uh, it will be neat to watch this thing, you know, like that's sort of, you know, what, what's intriguing about this to me is this is more of you know, a telescope is a telescope and we've mentioned mm -hmm. many times that, you know, it's basic, like the basic telescope, especially a refractor really hasn't changed that much in hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um, but this type of sea star thing is really like, there's a lot of tech on board. And mm -hmm. the great thing about tech is it just gets cheaper and cheaper as time moves on. Yeah. And often in addition to becoming cheaper, you probably are even getting better components. Um, so it'll be neat to see the sea star evolution or uh, sort of roadmap that it may have. And, you know, if they increase apertures or come out with other options. So super cool thing in the hobby and it's neat to see people grabbing onto it. I, I could totally see this though. I think there's going to be some unexpected um, outcomes from this. One of them might be that we could end up with more people doing visual astronomy because I know that with the astro imagers that, that I've known over the years, they, they go and they, they set up their rigs and they get them running. And then, and, and I've even seen this, this happen with, with you, Shane, on, on the times we've been out where you're doing some exposures and then, you know, you, you kind of tend to your, uh, your equipment there a little bit and yours is uh, pretty hands off. And then you'd come over and we do some observing and then you'd sort of be uh, back and forth a little bit. But with this equipment, it really is pretty autonomous. So once you kind of get it set up and running and spend that first, whatever it is, four or five minutes getting it running, it's pretty quick. Um, you know, a lot of these people are going to be out in the dark already under the stars and they're going to say, well, what am I going to do now? Kind of thing. And well, sort of like the obvious thing might be to go and do some astronomy. Eh? Mm, yeah. Bring, bring out a pair of binoculars or something like that. And yeah, just yeah. start observing. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that, uh, it's going to do that. I think Jim even mentioned with, uh, with his observing that he's kind of looking at some targets while it's, uh, doing others, like maybe he's observing planets or the moon or what have you while this thing might be imaging uh, deep sky objects so mm -hmm. uh, i could totally totally see that i think it's uh yeah it's a it's a neat device uh for sure but uh i think as well i, I think it could end up leading to more people maybe uh doing some of the old visual astronomy back again yeah 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 for sure
Rob sent us, uh, and I'm not going to read it. Um, I do have it uh, away in a safe spot, but Rob sent along a, a long list of show ideas. So all I'm going to say is uh, we'll do our best, Rob, <laughs> at trying to uh, get some folks. One of the things that I've found a little bit challenging, Shane, is, and and Rob had, um, I think he had nine or ten pretty good suggestions that I, mm -hmm. I added to our, our list of potential shows for the future. Um, I believe one of them involved getting a YouTuber on. However, the challenge I find with YouTubers is connecting with them a lot of the time. Because mm -hmm. yeah, it's not always obvious uh, with an email address uh, how to how to contact them or how to reach them. Yeah, unless they have a separate site, and even when they've had and I've emailed them, I've I've not typically heard back. Um, the people who we've had on that have had YouTube channels have typically reached out to us. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and like I said, on, on the few occasions where I have reached out to people, I haven't heard back, which is, uh, you know, unfortunate because I, I think they would be people our listeners would enjoy, uh, hearing from, but like Mark Radici and, um, I think there's been others and we're going to have, uh, Damien on soon. Um, they've reached out to us and like with Damien, he was one of those people actually I had looked at his site last year and or whenever it was I found it, it might have even been longer ago because he's a person who's been getting some of the large aperture uh, Hubble optics uh, telescopes. And so I've been following him along and what he's been doing with them, which is uh, mostly focused on um, like really incredible planetary imaging and kind of getting those scopes up and running. And, you know, it's super, super cool stuff. Really have enjoyed those. Uh, however, it wasn't until he reached out to us that I kind of had a way to to chat because it is kind of awkward just to put it in like the comments like hey we have a podcast would you want to be on our you know like i mean mm -hmm. it's like who's this crazy person right mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah it doesn't work out so well sometimes mm -hmm. all right um let's see oh dave wrote, i like this dave wrote one on the uh the the and because i think i'd me or you or somebody anyway we, we end up finding the old language with the plossel where they were using the weird um italicized b instead of the s's and i was trying to figure that one out so uh, dave goes on to write uh chris and shane thanks for the great podcast i haven't listened to them all yet but i'm working on it to which i reply sorry for the early shows i've been in the hobby around two and a half years now so i'm no expert but i'm really enjoying the learning journey. While listening to your recent episode on new Takahashi eyepieces, I noted that you had a little bit of a discussion around the pronunciation of the plossal eyepiece. I thought I'd provide a little clarity. First, the funny B that you saw is actually called an S-Z? E-S-Z-E-T-T? This it? Mm -hmm. Which Some, is... Something like that. Which is written uh, in German and signifies two letter s's in a row so here's an excerpt from wikipedia in germany orthography the letter b which is like a italicized almost looks like a greek letter b capital b called sz or scharf's s represents the s phenem in standard german when following long vowels and diphthongs been a while since i've worn a diphthong okay anyway the umlaut over the o letter changes the pronunciation from o to u sounding similar to u in the word look almost 
So just a sec. Still having a bit of a cough. So let's see. Looking forward to sending an observation report in the future. All I need is some clear nights. I think I can count the number of clear nights we've had since the beginning of December on one hand. And that's in Albany, New York. Uh, thanks again. And keep those podcasts coming. I plan to become one of your Patreon supporters in the near future. Well, thanks so much for that, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for, uh, I guess, shedding some uh, light on how to pronounce the the plosal or plusal. Is that is that probably how it is? Plusal, maybe? It must be know. plusal. Like, look, yeah. plusal. and I'm not going to point out who this was they probably don't listen to the show I don't think they do astronomy anymore but I did have we had a club president at one of the centers I belong to and they had the strangest mispronunciation for Plossel and I mean maybe I'm off on this one but they pronounced it as Flossel Hmm. okay strangely enough they could have been joking but now that I think about it they were a dentist you know, if, if there's one challenging part in this hobby, it is just learning how to pronounce uh, all of the different words that come from multiple different languages uh, in origin, uh, because there's a lot. And, uh, you know, whether it's constellation names or in this case, an eyepiece uh, design, um, you know, there's there's a lot out there. Yeah. Greek constellation mythology with Arabic star names mm-hmm, mm-hmm. based on Sumerian tradition what could be so confusing about that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Alistair sent us an email. Do you want to take a read of this one? At both yeah. This this one I feel like is right up your alley. Well, I don't think it is. <laughs> because when I read it, I was like, I don't know what to say here. Um, but, you know, maybe we can talk through it and, and uh, you know, give an intelligent response here. So Alistair said, hey guys, uh, I've run into a situation where I need observing advice. Uh, I've resurrected the club's Atlas EQG uh, with a new Skywatcher EQ6 Pro motherboard and now have a go-to that I drive off Sky Safari uh, using a Wi-Fi dongle and the uh, SynScan Pro app. Mm -hmm. Uh, The field orientation is throwing me for a loop. All my life, I've used either Dobsonians on a platform, uh, an Alt-As or an Equatorial SCT on a fork, essentially. Uh, all of the images have, or, or sorry, yeah, all the images have minimal or straightforward rotation slash flipping so that I never get confused which way is north or west is. Uh, now the gem mount flips across the meridian and I have to rotate the diagonal to a decent eye position. Of course, Sky Safari shows me the scene horizontally flipped, uh, refractor plus diagonal, but it takes me a while to figure out the rotation of the tablet, and I am almost always pushing the wrong buttons. After a flip, uh, there's typically a choice to rotate the diagonal to the left or right of vertical. Is there a mnemonic or consistent method to make this easier? I know I can create an eight by 11 sheet with diagrams, you know, with, and then he lists a few examples here, uh, scope pointing Northeast with diagonal to the left and orientation is blah, blah, button do this, you know, just a kind of a template. And then if the scope is pointing Northeast with a diagonal to the right, then orientation is X, Y, Z. And then scope pointing Southeast with diagonal to the left, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, But, 
the real question is, is there an easier way of doing this? And uh, then he just ends with uh, saying with things like double star or red star lists, the scope is flipping around a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, while I own an EQ mount and have uh, experienced this a little bit in the past, I don't know how to solve it. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know if it's inherent with those mounts and you just get used to it over time. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that one, Chris? I bought an EZ EQ6. <laughs> That's like one of my main reasons why yeah, is, yeah. is that I'm used to Altaz. I like Altaz. I just want to point the scope and have it go. And then, uh, you know, I want it to be able to track you know, so that I can do sketching. Um, yeah, but as far as that orientation goes, that is super annoying because you get used to kind of how things are oriented in your field. And I mean, Alistair's more experienced amateur astronomer than we are. And I think perhaps what he's running into is sort of a, a bit of, a like a new presentation through the eyepiece. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, that would be, that would be kind of a challenge. You know, if somebody was just starting out. I think it's it's not really a problem. You probably just sort of learn and get used to it or or whatever. It's just going to be sort of part of your astronomy experience. But for those of us that kind of rely on that sky orientation that we're so accustomed to, um, that was enough to drive me away from not getting an equatorial mount. I mean, maybe that's a bit extreme, but because it's not an insignificant cost chain, no matter how you cut it, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I just didn't want to have that kind of barrier or, or, or to get the equatorial and then be dissatisfied for this type of reason. Um, so I, I went with a used days at EQ six. That's, mm -hmm. that's what I end up doing really just because of this. So, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a Celestron AVX, which is a, an equatorial mount, uh, in my, uh, in my observatory when I had that in the backyard, and I intentionally went for an EQ mount because at that point in time, I thought I might get into some imaging, um, mostly solar system imaging from the backyard, which I never did. Um, but you know, the, the movement of that mount was very strange to me because I'm, you know, used to alt as, and, uh, what, what really became an issue at times, depending on the movement and how the eyepiece and diagonal were oriented is that, uh, there was multiple times where as the as the scope was panning to the new object that I wanted to observe that the eyepiece was going to make contact with the tripod leg mm. and that I would have to quickly either, you know, take the eyepiece out while it's moving, uh, or there was a couple times I just killed the power to the mount so that it wouldn't have a collision, which I don't think is very good for no. those mounts. And, uh, you know, I probably could have, you know, caused myself some real grief, but luckily I didn't. Um, so anyway, I sold that AVX. Uh, I still have an EQ mount. It's the, uh, Los Mandy, uh, GM nine or whatever the heck they call it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not, uh, it doesn't have any go-to capabilities. It does track. Um, but one thing I'll say with that mount is because it, you know, to, to move the scope to different objects is all manual. That helped me get a little bit, I don't know, I guess maybe understand or be able to predict the movements a little bit more when mm -hmm. I was actually doing the moving. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed like after not a lot of time, actually, it, it starts to become more intuitive. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised, you know, practice, practice, practice. And, uh, that's how you get good at things. But, um, 
the manual movement certainly helped because with that AVX, you know, you press up on, on the little control panel or pad. Well, up isn't always up on an EQ mount. It really depends on how it's oriented at that point mm -hmm. in time. So it was just very strange to me. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I still prefer my AZ or my alt as mounts. Um, and you know, I don't really see myself getting away from those. Uh, you know, at least for my purposes, that's really all I need. Yeah. See, you undersold it at the start. See, I, I knew you had, you have a bit of experience with these EQ mounts. I think that's some fairly solid advice there for Alistair. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, you know, originally I thought I would get an EQ and then track the planets with them. Uh, but then for everything else, like the deep sky where I just want to go and point it, like even with the, um, this mount, which is, uh, it is a go-to mount and you, you can, you know, I do set it up often with the go-to running to, um, you know, find stuff or whatever, but like half the time I don't, like, I just don't even turn the power on, you mm -hmm. know? And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get that mount is just that I could take it and just point, not have to worry about the weird orientations with the, uh, EQ mode. Um, one of the other things that impacted me and my choice, Shane, was that I came to understand that if you have an EQ mount, you may not want to mount the telescope uh, here in the direct center of the observatory. You may want to mount it like in a slightly different position. And then like mm -hmm. doing that was just going to be like a mm -hmm. problem for me and the builder and all that kind of stuff. So I, I was happy I got the uh, AZEQ6 and yeah, if I was going to get something else, I would probably just get a another one like this or another different type of big uh, Alta Zenith mount. I just like them and mm -hmm. yeah, point and go. It's, that's the way to that's the way to go. I think. Agreed. Yep, I'm the same. But he's got a good deal on this. Everybody said it's like half price or less for this because he got it running if he can get it. So you know, I, I can understand that. And yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't know. And there's some real advantages to EQ mounts, uh, particularly for imaging and tracking, mm -hmm. um, but also just weight capacity. You know, if you have a very large telescope, um, an EQ mount can typically handle them, you know, more stably than a alt as mount. Yeah. It, it all, it, like, it's like everyone's different though. Every mount is different because with the, if I, if I use my mount in equatorial mode, the weight capacity is less. Oh, wow. Okay. That's yeah, interesting. That, that's what, that's what they say. And it seems to be the case because like, it seems pretty ridiculous in like what it could hold in Alta Zenith mode, but you can see when you flip it into equatorial mode, you're increasing like the tangent arm and that sort of thing, if I'm using the right term, but maybe I'm wrong. I've just read a lot about it and yeah, there's some, yeah, different thoughts and opinions, but regardless, you know, a good deal in amount is a good deal in amount. And uh, if you can run that one in manual mode, maybe that's like what you said, Shane, just go out and use it manual for a while and then kind of get used to those motions. That's, I think, pretty sound advice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else? I didn't put too too many listener emails. We've got a, we've got a lot to, I've got a few sitting there to get through. Um, but was there anything else you wanted to add to the show? No, that's everything, Chris. All right. Well, please subscribe, share the show with other stargazers you know, and send us your ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. 
If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>